Chapter 34 The Cabin Table It is noon, and Doughboy, the steward, thrusting his pale loaf-of-bread face from the cabin scuttle, announces dinner to his lord and master, who, sitting in the lee quarter-boat, has just been taking an observation of the sun, and is now mutely reckoning the latitude and the smooth, medallion-shaped tablet, reserved for the daily purpose on the upper part of his ivory leg. From his complete inattention to the tidings, you would think that Moody Ahab had not heard his menial. But presently, catching hold of the mizzen shroud, he swings himself to the deck, and in an even, unexhilarated voice, saying, Dinner, Mr. Starbuck, disappears into the cabin. When the last echo of his sultan's step has died away, and Starbuck, the first emir, has every reason to suppose that he is seated, then Starbuck rouses from his quietude, takes a few turns along the planks, and, after a grave peep into the binnacle, says with some touch of pleasantness, Dinner, Mr. Stubb, and descends the scuttle. The second emir lounges about the rigging a while, and then slightly shaking the main brace to see whether it be all right with the important rope, he likewise takes up the old burden, and with a rapid dinner, Mr. Flask, follows after his predecessors. But the third emir, now seeing himself all alone on the quarterdeck, seems to feel relieved from some curious restraint, for, tipping all sorts of knowing winks in all sorts of directions and kicking off his shoes, he strikes into a sharp but noiseless squall of a hornpipe right over the Grand Turk's head, and then, by a dexterous slight, pitching his cap into the mizzen stop for a shelf, he goes down rollicking, so far, at least, as he remains visible from the deck, reversing all other processions, by bringing up the rear with music, but ere stepping into the cabin doorway below, he pauses, ships a new face altogether, and, then, independent, hilarious little flask enters King Ahab's presence, in the character of Abjectus, or the slave. It is not the least among the strange things bred by the intense artificialness of sea usages, that, while in the open air of the deck some officer will, upon provocation, bear themselves boldly and defyingly enough towards their commander, yet, ten to one, let those very officers the next moment go down to their customary dinner in the same commander's cabin, and straightway they're inoffensive, not to say depreciatory or humble air towards him, as he sits at the head of the table. This is marvelous, sometimes most comical. Wherefore this difference? A problem? Perhaps not. To have been Balthazar, King Babylon, and to have been Balthazar, not haughtily or courteous, therein certainly must have been some touch of mundane grandeur. But he who in the rightly regal and intelligent spirit presides over his own private dinner table of invited guests, that man's unchallenged power and dominion of individual influence for the time, that man's royalty of state transcends Balthazar's, for Balthazar was not the greatest. Who has but once dined his friends, has tasted what it is to be Caesar. It is a witchery of social czarship, which there is no withstanding. Now, if this consideration you superadd the official supremacy of a shipmaster, then, by inference, you will derive the cause of the peculiarity of sea life just mentioned. Over his ivory inlaid table, Ahab presided like a mute. Man sea lion on a white coral beach, surrounded by his warlike but still defiant cubs. In his own proper turn, each official waited to be served. They were as little children before Ahab, and yet in Ahab there seemed not to lurk the smallest social arrogance. With one mind, their intent eyes all fastened upon the old man's knife as he carved the chef's dish before him. 
I do not suppose that for the world they would have profaned that moment with the slightest observation, even upon so neutral a topic as the weather. No. And when reaching out his knife and fork, between which the slice of beef was locked, Ahab thereby mentioned Starbuck's plate towards him. The mate received his meat as though receiving alms, and cut it tenderly, and a little started if, perchance, the knife grazed against the plate, and chewed it noiselessly, and swallowed it, not without circumspection. For like the coronation banquet of Frankfurt, where the German emperor proudly dines with his seven imperial electors, so these cabin meals were somehow solemn meals, eaten in awful silence. And yet at table old Ahab forbade not conversation, only he himself was dumb. What a relief it was to a choking stub, when a rat made a sudden racket in the hold below. And poor old Flask, he was the youngest son, and little boy of his weary family pantry. His were the shin bones of the salin beef. His would have been drumsticks. For Flask, to have presumed to help himself, this must have seemed to him tantamount to larceny in the first degree. Had he helped himself at the table, doubtless never more would he have been able to hold his head up in the most honest world. Nevertheless, strange to say, Ahab never forbade him, and had Flask help himself, and chances were Ahab never so much noticed it. Least of all did Flask presume to help himself to butter, whether he thought the owners of the ship denied it to him, on account of its clotting his clear, sunny complexion, or whether he deemed that, on so long a voyage in such marketless waters, butter was at a premium, and therefore was not for him a subaltern. However it was, Flask, alas, was a butterless man. Another thing, Flask was the last person down at the dinner, and Flask was the first man up. Consider, for hereby Flask's dinner was badly jammed to the point of time. Starbuck and Stubb both had the start of him, and yet they also had the privilege of lounging in the rear. If Stubb even, who was but a peg higher than Flask, happened to have a small appetite and soon shows symptoms of concluding his repast, then Flask must bestir himself. He will not get more than three mouthfuls that day, for it is against holy usage for Stubb to precede Flask to the deck. Therefore, it was that Flask once admitted in private that ever since he had arisen to the dignity of officer, from that moment he had never known what it was to be otherwise hungry, more or less. For what he ate did not much relieve his hunger, as keep it immortal in him. Peace and satisfaction, thought Flask, have forever departed from my stomach. I am an officer, but how I wish I could fist a bit of old-fashioned beef in the forecastle, as I used to when I was before the mast." There's the fruit of promotion now. There's the vanity of glory. There's the insanity of life. Besides, if it were so that any mere sailor of the Pequod had a grudge against Flask in Flask's official capacity, all that sailors had to do in order to obtain ample vengeance was to go to the aft at dinner time and get a peep at Flask through the cabin skylight, sitting silly and dumbfounded there before awful Ahab. Now Ahab and his three mates formed what may be called the first table in the Pequod's cabin. After their departure, taking place in an inverted order to their arrival, the canvas cloth was cleared, or rather, restored to some hurried order by the pallid steward, and then the three harpooners were bidden to the feast, they being the residuary legatees. They made a sort of temporary servants' hall of the high and mighty cabin. In strange contrast to the hardly tolerable constraints and nameless invisible domineerings of the captain's table was the entire carefree license and ease, the almost frantic democracy of those inferior fellows and harpooners. 
While their masters, the mates, seemed afraid of the sound and the hinges of their own jaws, the harpooners chewed their food with such relish that there was a rapport to it. They dined like lords, they filled their bellies like Indian ships, all day loading such spices. Such portentous appetites had Quig-Quag and Tashtego that to fill out the vacancies made by the previous repast, often the pale doughboy was fain to bring a great baron or salt junk, seemingly quarried out of solid ox. And if he were not lively about it, if he did not go with a nimble hop, skip, and jump, then Tashtego had in an ungentlemanly way of accelerating him by darting a fork at his back, harpoon-wise. And once Degu, seized with a sudden humor, assisted Doughboy's memory by snatching him up bodily and thrusting his head into a great empty wooden trencher, while Tashtego's knife in hand began laying out the circle preliminary to scalping him. He was naturally a very nervous, shuddering sort of little fellow, his bread-faced steward the progeny of a bankrupt banker and a hospital nurse. And what with the standing spectacle of the black terrific Ahab, and the periodical tumultuous visitations of these three savages, Doughboy's whole life was one continual lip-quiver. Commonly, after seeing the harpooners furnished with all things they demanded, he would escape from their clutches into this little pantry adjoining, and fearfully peep out at them through the blinds at the door, till all was over. It was a sight to see Quigquig seated over against Teshtego, opposing his filed teeth to the Indians. Crosswise to them, Degu seated on the floor for a bench that would have brought his hearst-plumed head to the low carlines. At any motion of his colossal limbs, making the low cabin framework to shake, as when an African elephant goes passenger in a ship, but for all this, the great negro was wonderfully abstemious, not to say dainty. It seemed hardly possible that such comparatively small mouthfuls he could keep up the vitality diffused through broad, baronial, and superb a person. But doubtless, this noble savage fed strong and drank deep of the abounding element of air, and through his dilated nostrils stuffed in the sublime life of the world's. Not by beef or bread are giants made or nourished, but Quigquag, he had a mortal, barbaric smack of the lip in eating, an ugly sound enough, so much so, that the trembling doughboy almost looked to see whether any marks of his teeth lurked in his own lean arms. And when he would hear Tashtego singing out for him to produce himself, that his bones might be picked, the simple-witted steward all but shattered the crockery hanging around him in the pantry, by his sudden fits of the palsy. Nor did the whetstone which the harpooners carried in their pockets for their lances and other weapons, with which the whetstone, at dinner, they would ostentatiously sharpen their knives. That grating sound did not at all tend to tranquilize poor Doughboy. How could he forget that in his island days, Quigquag, for one, must certainly have been guilty for some murderous convivial indiscretions? Alas, Doughboy, hard fares the white waiter who waits upon cannibals. Not a napkin should he carry in his arms, but a buckler. In good time, though, to his great delight, the three salt-sea warriors would rise and depart, to his credulous fable-mongering ears, all their martial bones jingling in them at every step, like Moorish scimitars and scabbards. But, though these barbarians dined in the cabin and nominally lived there, still, being anything but sedentary in their habits— they were scarcely ever in except at mealtimes, and just before sleeping time, when they passed through to their own peculiar quarters. In this one matter, Ahab seemed no exception to most American whale captain, who, as a set, 
rather inclined to the opinion that by rights the ship's cabin belongs to them, and that it is by courtesy alone that anybody else at any time permitted there, so that, in real truth, that the mates and harpooners of the Pequod might more properly be said to have lived out of the cabin than in it. As when they did enter it, it was something as a street door enters a house, turning inwards for a moment, only to be turned out the next, and, as a permanent thing, residing in the open air. Nor did they lose much hereby. In the captain was no companionship. Socially, Ahab was inaccessible. Though nominally included in the census of Christendom, he was still an alien to them. He lived in the world, as the last of the grizzly bears lived in Missouri, and as when spring and summer had departed, that wild Logan of the woods, burying himself in the hollow of a tree, lived out the winter there, sucking his own paws in his inclement howling old age. Ahab's soul, shut up in the cave trunk of this body, there fed upon the sullen paws of its gloom. Thanks for listening to Moby Dick Pod. If you've liked what you've heard so far, consider subscribing or leaving us a rating on Apple Podcast. And as always, thanks for listening.